but these are seven statements of his dying words here. So let's go to Luke 23 to see the first today, and we'll study that. And sometimes when people die, um, those that love them and are around them listen carefully to some of the last things they say. They want to capture that and treasure that. And the same is true for Jesus. We want to capture and treasure His words. Now, when others, now, sometimes when people die, they may not have anything profound, and it may be something you don't want to hear. And because sometimes people babble and they're under an influence, maybe of some medicine, or some people may be dying under really non-ideal circumstances, going delirious, that has happened even to Christians. And others, people, some others die very intentionally saying things that are helpful. Jesus is here under no, though he's under a torturous death, uh, he is not delirious, he's not rambling on, he's not spewing fluff, uh, he's saying things that are of substance. So Luke chapter 23, <clears throat> Luke chapter 23, and we'll just look at verse 32. And we'll read from verse 32 to 38. Luke 23, verse 32 to 38. It says, And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. We're on Luke 23, verse 35 now. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. So notice again, verse 34, this is what we'll consider today. A very simple statement that says much to us. Right there, that verse right up on your screen and on your text, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I was reading some guys. Let's show the next slide. There's a, there's a person named Voltaire. That was his literary name. I don't remember his real French name. <clears throat> Voltaire. Looks like he's pretty happy about his hairdo there. Yeah. And... Um, He's French, French uh, writer, and so-called Enlightenment writer. <clears throat> that means he was looked at as very enlightened and wise. And he would have been, he would have been kind of like a very scholar for an American context, a very, very scholarly type of ultra-libertarian guy. Libertarians are people that are not, they're trying not to be the right or the left. They're trying to be just let everybody do whatever they want and get out of our way. And that appeals to some, but he's also, he used his pen to write these type of ideas, which has had its place, but
but he also used his pen to try to dismantle Christianity. And people read him a lot. He was very influential on um, a lot of people in his time and the years. 1694 to 1778, he lived. He was a French infidel. Um, and here's what he was famous for saying. In 20 years, he said this at one point, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took the 12 apostles to rear up. And that's what he said. Soon after his death, for a while, didn't happen long, but for a while there was a Christian man who actually took possession of his house owned it. And this man happened to be the president of what was called the Evangelical Society of Geneva. He owned the house, and for a while, that very house where he penned all those godless things that were trying to dismantle Christianity, the, new, the Christian that now owned it used that house to store Bibles and gospel tracts in. Today, they've changed it over, and it's like a museum trying to put back into remembrance his secular mind and uh, contributions. But I want you to hear his dying words. His dying words were this. He had, his, he, had his, he had a nurse in there, and he had a physician in there. And he said to his physician, desperately, loudly, he cried. These are his words, and it's hard to hear them. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life, says to his physician. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ, and they died. His nurse later on said, she was there too, she couldn't stand it. She said, for all the wealth in Europe, I, would ne- I don't, wouldn't want to see another infidel die. <laughs> it wasn't fun. Here's another man, another picture here, Todd Beamer, some of you have heard of him. Um, 20 years ago, over 20 years, 22 years ago he died. And uh, on the famous, uh, infamous, really, day that we were attacked, September 11, 2001. I love this story. I'll try to give you the short end of it. You, some of you know his last words, don't you? They're good. He was a Christian, too. Christian man. He ended up going to Wheaton College, which is traditionally, I don't know where it's at now, traditionally it was evangelical, conservative evangelical type of place. Uh, I think John R. Rice went there. But he went there. He's a Christian man. Married in his early 30s is when he died. Uh, died on Flight 93, one of the four planes that was hijacked on that day of September 11, 2001. It was one of the four planes. Three of the planes hit their intended uh, destination that the terrorists had. Two, one in each World Trade Center, the other one at the Pentagon. And this fourth one he was on, they think it was headed toward the White House or one of the buildings near the Capitol. And it didn't get there. So Todd Beamer was on that flight. Of course, some other men who are brave and women. When their flight took off that morning, I don't remember if it was New York or New Jersey, but it was back east. The flight took off. It was headed back to California, I think uh, San Francisco, so across the country full of fuel. When it took off, as it's flying, passengers are in there, normal, normal, peaceful flight. The pilots are being informed. Right after they take off, they hear about the first uh, plane hitting the first tower back in New York. Then, whatever minutes later, they hear about the second plane hitting the second tower in New York. And so the pilots are like, okay. And then I can't remember if they heard about the Pentagon being hit yet, but pretty soon there came a warning over their radio system to the two pilots flying, 
uh, piloting Flight 93 that said, beware of a breach of the cabin. Uh, and so within a few minutes after that, the cabin was breached. There were four terrorists on that board of Flight 93, and they busted through, took over, I believe killed the pilots instantly, took over the flight, made an announcement you know, to, the, to all the passengers, uh, something to the effect, we're taking over, we got a bomb on the flight, uh, a bomb on us. Two of the two men, I believe, were in the cabin, two men were in the area where the people were se seated in the, um, and the other men were in the cockpit, in the cabin, then the cockpit, and they took over the flight. <clears throat> Meanwhile, all the attendants, the flight attendants and the passengers were huddled in the way back of the flight, of the plane, the large airplane. Todd Beamer, among some others, had tried to call people on the uh, phone provided uh, by the airplane. Todd tried to call his wife, whose name was Lisa, but couldn't get through to her. He somehow was rerouted to a customer service agent with, I don't know who, maybe it was the airline, because he rerouted to a customer service agent whose also name was Lisa. Her name was Lisa Jefferson. The conversation, the phone stayed on for about 13 minutes. Uh, the, the phone line stayed open between him and her, and so she heard all kinds of stuff. So he was talking with her, Lisa Jefferson, and you know they're saying all these things like this is what's happening, and she already kind of knows, and he's giving her some insight on what's happening and, and people that are, may have been hurt or whatever. And, and he also said he, in that time of talking with her, kind of confiding, he says, can you cite, recite the Lord's Prayer with me? which is the, we call the, maybe the disciples' prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And she, she, she recited that with him. And then she said he was just talking, and he'd say, he'd say, Oh, God, help me. Jesus, could you please help me, he said. And then he paused for a little bit, and then he and some other men in that back of the plane uh, made a plan. I don't remember, maybe four of them had a plan. You know the story, many of you that they were going to group together and just probably take down one of the guys, the terrorists that was guarding it, and bust into the a cockpit and take over the plane. That was what they were going to do. It's kind of like, what have we got to lose? We're going to lose something anyways. And so they decided that that's what they are going to do. They um, planned together to storm the cockpit, these men. And after them, there would be a train of people, too, to help go in. And so, you know, this plane had already turned around, turned around over Ohio and was headed back. And um, so they did it. Phone's still on, and he goes back to the Lisa on the phone. He says, if I don't make it, please tell my family and let them know how much I love them. Then it went muffled, muffled, muffled. And then she heard the last words, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. And that was it. Then it was a bunch of not fun sounding things. And they ran through there, they busted through. And there's a lot more details than I can tell you, but they got in and it was a fight and maybe some of them even died before they landed. But the plane I read landed upside down, probably going several hundred miles an hour, three or 400 miles an hour in a safer place in Pennsylvania. Of course, there's a memorial there. And crashed and avoided another uh, smack in the face to, to us as a country and perhaps more people dying. But aren't you, isn't that precious, those last words? 
Now, I, I was, I don't know, how was I, late 20s when this happened. What was I? Something like that. But I remember everybody's using that phrase, weren't they? Let's roll in a different way. And then the president was using it like, let's roll, let's roll into the Middle East and, and you know, take out some Al-Qaeda. That was the mindset, let's roll. And that was, became a catchphrase. Those last words are precious, weren't they? I, I mean, that's got to be precious to his wife, precious to, to some men who need a little spark in their manhood. Yeah. And that's what he does. And so we see Jesus, the first of his seven statements is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's look at this next, uh, go to the next two slides here. I want you to consider quickly Jesus' all seven statements. These are the seven statements. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he said, Today, to to the criminal, by him, verily say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Well, look at that. He led somebody to himself. (laughs) Somebody got saved while he was up on the cross. And then his mother comes and visits, and uh, John, the younger uh, disciple, is with him. He said to his mother, while he's hanging up on the cross, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said to John, Son, behold thy mother. He passed the responsibility of taking care of his mother over to John. It was a responsible thing to do on the cross. Kind of inconvenient to be making plans on the cross, isn't it? But he did it. Then the middle statement, My God, well, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Expressing anguish as a man before God. We can relate with that. We'll hopefully will next time, or when we get to it. His um, uh, fifth statement, I thirst. His sixth statement, it is finished. His last statement, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Notice the first statement, Father. The last statement, Father. Notice the middle statement, my God. He's speaking, relating as a man forsaken of God. Jesus' manhood, his humanity is amplified on the cross. And his divinity is also seen on the cross in their fullness in short statements. But let's notice, with all his human faculties being ravaged, he spoke truth and he speaks things that are to our benefit. Let's look at this, this. This is the rest of our time. We'll just consider this statement here. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What do they do? He said they know not what they do. So what is it? What were they doing? What were they doing? Let's back up a little bit. Let's get a little sample, picturing what in the world were they doing? Look at chapter 22. Let's look at verse 63. This is as he's being taken, not crucified yet. Chapter 22, verse 63. The men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. Verse 64. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy. Who is it that smote thee? Verse 65. And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. We're going to highlight some spots in chapter 23. Verse 1. 
And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. So the Jews are manipulating Jesus' situation before the Roman uh, guy that's over them. And they began, verse 2, to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Pilate was not at all impressed with their criminal charges with him. He said it three times at least. I don't find anything wrong with this guy. I don't find anything wrong with him. Even though he's saying he's king of the Jews, I don't find anything wrong with him. But they were just like, the Jews were like, we've got to get him somehow. And so they kept their hurling uh, false witnesses, uh, false accusations and insults against him. And so uh, look what it says there in verse 13. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. So Pilate's the Roman. He's the one who has oversight over their, over their justice system. This is a subculture of Jews under them. He calls the leaders of the subculture here, the chief priests, the rulers. And he says to them, hey, you have brought unto me this man, verse 14, one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you this in effect. Examined him before you and found no fault in this man, touching those things wherever you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done to him, unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Let's keep reading. For of necessity he must release one of the, unto them at the feast. So what do they do? The, the legal authority says, I don't find anything wrong with him. So what do they do? Verse 18, and they cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas. There was a tradition during that time, the, the Roman leader would release a, a, a pathetic criminal to show a little mercy on the Jews. It was a tradition. We're going to let a guy go. Like the, you know, the, the president lets the turkey go free, right? Around Thanksgiving. He's letting this turkey go. That was it. But they would usually do a real rotten turkey. Like, this guy's bad, but we're going to let him go. Show you how good and merciful we are. The Jew says, don't let him go, the one who actually is innocent. Let this Barabbas go. Barabbas was a bad dude. Verse 19. For a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer, uh, Barabbas was. Pilate, therefore, verse 20, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Whoa! And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. So he's capitulating to the people. All right, fine, we'll just, we'll crucify this innocent man. Verse 25. There's an unfair exchange. He released unto them him, that is Barabbas, for, that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. This is an unfair exchange. But it does picture our salvation. We get off free. Jesus takes our punishment. That's how you get to be saved. Somebody's got to take care of your stuff. 
your, problem, your sins. I get to go free. I'm the Barabbas in this picture. Jesus goes in my place. Verse 26, And they led him away, and as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that, it, that he might bear it after Jesus. Let's skip up here, uh, verse 32, as we read earlier, but let's read it again. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And then when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then that's when he says, Father, forgive them. So what did they do? They did. They, soldiers took him. They didn't just take him. Let's just let's do this. Let's compose ourselves. Let's be professional about this. We're arresting a criminal. Let's take him. In. No, they were very rude, bad cops, bad cops. Hey, they take him and they mock him and they spit on him and they robe him and they smack him and they who hit you that time and they do all kinds of stuff. And and, and I didn't even read all of it. I'm just giving you a sample. Herod had men that did the same thing. And then, they, and then they, um, they bring him before Pilate, try to set him up. Pilate's like, I don't find anything wrong. No, but he's bad. He's, he's always messing everything up. And he's stirring up the people. And he says that you shouldn't pay taxes to you, to Rome, which wasn't true. They're lying about him. They mocked him. They derided him. They insulted him. They lied about him. Don't you hate it when somebody lies about you? Just on that point, we come unglued on that, don't we? He, the people lied about him. And then, and then they kept manipulating, manipulating and then he was mocked again when he saw Herod, one of the other leaders. And then he's brought back. And they said, he is worthless. We don't want him. Give us the Barabbas. You take Jesus. Keep him and crucify him. And not only was he mocked, spit upon, insulted, blasphemy spoke against, and lied about, and set up to be crucified, but he was crucified with a group that made him look like them. See, some of us are like that. I don't want to look like I don't want to look like some scumbag. Yeah. I, I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, we're always like our image. He was, his image was just thrown right up in there. He looked like a scumbag. What about the other ones? The criminal. He looked like a criminal. He was put up on the cross. Two other, uh, two other malefactors, felons, probably murderers up there. And, and, and even just the crucifixion itself is just incredible pain. We could just spend a lot of time just talking about that. So his first words as he's up there, Father, forgive them, everybody involved here, for they know not what they do. What they're doing, look at what they're doing to him. Let's just take some observations of, his, of, what, he's, of what he's saying here. He says, he's, the first of all, we see that this is a prayer. Jesus is con in contact still with the Father. He's up on a cross. This is not the ideal time to have personal devotions. But he stays in contact with the Father all the time. Father, forgive them. He's still praying under the worst conditions up on the cross. Jesus prayed at his baptism when he went into the waters. It says he praying was baptized and the Holy Ghost came up on, on, on him in the form of a dove. And then there was times he prayed and went up in a mountain and was communed with the Father. There was other times when when um, he uh, prayed by himself. There was times when he went and took a few of the disciples and went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was praying. And then a few chapters, maybe one chapter earlier, he was praying in Gethsemane. He was always communing with the Father. 
Did you know that we as Christians can commune with the Father at all times? We, the reason we can is because when Jesus saves us, He says, here, come on in. You've got access to the Father. We have access to God. And we should commune with Him at all times. So here's Jesus. He's communing with the Father. This first thing on, on the cross is a prayer. It's a prayer of intercession, notice. So He's up on the cross. He's the victim here. And what is He doing? He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of the people who did a horrible thing to him, and he's intervening to the Father. He doesn't even say, hey, guys, I forgive you. He doesn't even say that. He's thinking the Father could really smack you all down, even though this is a hard thing to grasp. This is all part of God's plan. And yet man's sin fit right in there. And man's sin can still be punished on top of what was happening there on this act. This is an amazing thing. And so he says, Father, forgive them. It's not like, Father, forgive them. They just, they just blew up the temple. Boy, you're probably upset. It's not, Father, forgive them. They just cussed you out. He's saying, they just beat up your son and spit upon him and just treated him like manure and wanted to flush him down the toilet and said all kinds of things to your son. I'm the son. Forgive them. Give them some clemency. What does that mean? What is he saying? Forgive them. Is he saying just save them all without regard to their choosing that? Father, forgive them. They, they're not asking for forgiveness. They're just going about all dumb. <laughs> some, of the, some of the soldiers are like, all right, he's got five garments. I think it was around three, four, five garments. Let's go ahead and gamble them. They're cast lots to split up his garments. They're, not, they're just going about. And then the chief priests are making, oh, he's sitting still now. Hey, if you're the Christ, why don't you come down from the cross? Save yourself. And, 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 and they're, all, they're going about their thing. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're not aware of it. Not yet. But he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think what's happening. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means, and we'll show you proofs of it is God the Father could have punished everybody that was directly involved in that, and he could have a couple things God could do. He could just kill them. He could let them shut down spiritual senses. Shut them all down, then they won't get saved. See, there's a, there's a thing, in the, there's a thing, he could have, he could have, Give them over to a reprobate mind. Because they were fighting against Jesus. And they, many of them were um, uh, resisting his words and not believing him. And so as a consequence to that, sometimes God says, all right, you're going to shut him down. I'm going to shut you down. I mean, that's in the Bible. Where if you don't accept the light, he shuts it all the way off. And you'll live the rest of your life totally numb to gospel voice. And it's a reprobate mind. The father could have said, you know what, let's do that for all these bad people that just did this to my son. We're going to just shut them all off. Soldiers, priests, all of them, the people nearby, the common man, the two guys next to you, we're going to shut them down. They can't get saved. We're shutting them down. That's a way of just giving them the justice. Besides dying and going to hell, so he's not saying, Father, forgive them, like, um, just save them all because they're asking. They're not asking. He's saying, don't do anything yet. 
Forgive them. That's what he's saying. Give them some space, Father. Give them some clemency. Give them some slack. Give them some slack, yeah. He praised that. So what happens? Was the prayer answered? He's up on the cross and he says these other statements and things happen. Father, forgive them. What happens to the them? Well, one of the thems with the left to right, one of them we read about later. Well, at the beginning, each of these two guys, the left criminal, the right criminal, are going, why don't you just save yourself and get us off here too? And they're, rah, 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 they derided him. One of them ended up changing his heart. Yeah. He took, God gave him some space and uh, the father probably was drawing him to Christ. And the man believed on Jesus. When all this ended, when Jesus gave up this ghost and everything, one of the soldiers said, you know what? That was the Son of God. That really was. And then 50 days later, Peter gets up and preaches. You can read this in Acts. And many of the people in the same crowd were there listening to Peter 50 days later. And Peter preaches a message and he says, you all by way... There, was people, all the, there were other Jews from out of the country there. But there were Jews that were locals that were part of this crowd. And he said, you all with wicked hands took him and crucified him. Even though it was God's plan, your wicked hands got right involved in it. By wicked hands, you crucified him. And then they said, well, brother, what shall we do? And a lot of them got saved. And then some days later, again in Acts 4, Acts the end of chapter 3, into chapter 4, Another, it was the same group. There was group people in there. And many of them got saved again of that crowd. Not all. And then in Acts chapter 6, it says that the church was mushrooming. It was growing. And they had to get deacons. And they got deacons. And they set them in order. And the church went forward. And then it says, and many, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I think Jesus' prayer was answered. He prayed, this group, Father, forgive them. Give them some space here. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. We're going to give them a little time. And they're going to realize what they've done. And they have a little clemency. And they're still their senses can be open enough to have the choice to believe. Some believe on Pentecost. Some believe days later. Obviously, this one soldier believed and one of the criminals believed. God gave them space to believe repent space to believe and they believed and then they got the full forgiveness of eternal life that's beautiful father forgive them god wants us to by the way if you know this message of jesus dying across for your sins and being buried and rising from the dead and you haven't trusted him personally as your savior don't think you have the whole all you could die anytime or the light could go dim in your perception, in your willingness. You should be glad that you, even, that you can even ponder being willing. God can just shut that down to where you can't. Well, Jesus is saying, give them space, Father. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't know what they're doing. It's kind of odd. He's like, wait a minute. They know what they're doing. I mean, these guys know how to do a whip. I know how to do these whips on his back. These guys know how to hit a, hand, uh, a nail through feet. They know what they're doing, but they didn't see the scope of what they're doing. 
Peter said it in Acts 3.17, you, you did it ignorantly. He, he, he told them you, you were ignorant. Uh, Paul said that uh, about the gospel and about Christ's coming, he says none of the princes of this world knew what they were doing. If they did, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So God showed a little clemency because Jesus even gave them a reason. He gave the Father a reason. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And so the Father, I believe, answered that prayer. So what does this teach us? There's really one basic thing, and I don't have any more notes. This is it on the screen. This teaches us that we need to learn to intervene for undeserving people. I mean, that's the only way I could say it. It's like when I see this, it teaches me, the Christian today, I need to learn to intervene for undeserving people. Now, let's look at a couple things in our Bible. Go to Luke 9.23. I'm just going to show you some scriptures, okay? Because this isn't just, we're looking at Jesus, we see Jesus, but what's the bridge to me? Okay, let's start out by looking at the idea of bearing a cross. Luke 9.23. He said this at least twice in this book, bearing a cross. It means identify with him. That's what bearing a cross means. Luke 9.23, it says, um, if any, he, said, he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's saying, identify, deny your, your self-life and take up the cross life. Follow me, follow the way I am and even the way I am through the cross. Not that we literally have to be crucified, but that you follow the mentality and the attitude of Christ, the Christ who went to the cross, through the cross, and resurrected from it. Follow me, he says. Take up your cross. I have a cross. You take up yours. The cross life. Let's look at chapter, um, I think it was chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. And let's see. Chapter 14, verse 27. Chapter 14, verse 27, and it's just talking about full, all-out, unreserved commitment to follow Jesus, even if there's pain. Acts 4, Luke 14, 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoa! Didn't say you can't be saved, you just can't be a true student. Can't be a disciple. If I don't bear my cross, the difficulty that God had planned and put on my life, if I don't bear it, then I can't be His disciple. If I don't bear aspects of experience and treatment that He felt, and I run from it, and I lighten it, and I lighten it, then I'm not really His disciple. The disciple can't be, the disciple's supposed to be as the master. The master was misunderstood, mistreated, and, and misaligned, and, and all that thing. And so what do I expect I would happen to me if I follow Him? I need to bear my cross. Whoever doesn't bear his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. And then now let's go to a couple other scriptures. Um, oh, Luke, I'm sorry, go to Luke 6. Part of the cross bearing is something that Jesus just did, and he exemplified this right here. This is not fun, and I am no expert at this at all. I'm probably in kindergarten at best on this. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus taught this, and then on the cross, he exemplified it. 
But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Is that not what Jesus did? He loved them. He blessed, he, prayed, he blessed them. He prayed for them. It was a blessing for him to pray for them. Father, give them, just give them a chance here. Oh, great. That centurion got saved. The other criminal got saved. Some people later on, he prayed. for That was a blessing. I got to do that. I got to pray for those and intervene for those who are undeserving. Who's undeserving in your life? Who's undeserving of any prayer in your, in your natural mind? Who's undeserving of any, any forgiveness in your natural mind, in your life? It's probably, not anything, it's probably not as deep as what Jesus went. But even if it is, we've got to match it, right? It's probably light. You know? But there it is. Jesus says, okay, part of the cross bearing is do what I've done. Look at... Um, Go to, let's go to Ephesians 5. So what I'm trying to show you is that here's what Jesus did. While you're turning to Ephesians 5. Jesus did, does this. He's intervening. He's intervening for those, for the whole, we'll look at, talk about that. The souls of men who need to be saved. But he's intervening for the people who participated in this. And the tie, the bridge to us is I need to be a person who says, well, that's part of my cross. That's part of the deal. I guess I got to learn to do that. Huh? Right? I got to learn to do that. I got to take up a cross. My cross would involve being doing, doing something like that, blessing my enemies. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It says there, Be therefore followers of God. Ah, I got to follow that. As dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Think about this. He's saying, Follow the Lord, follow God like dear children. You know how children follow people? It's really funny. You ever see them? Now, some of you are like, I want to, how do we get my kids to follow me, Pastor? That's another story. But, you know, when they do follow you, isn't it kind of neat? They say, hey, hey, hey. They follow you around. Dear children, you know, um, they want to just like, where are we going? Okay. And they're just kind of naive. I'm just going to follow mommy. You know, follow daddy. We're at the zoo. No, I want to go see the lion. No, mommy doesn't say the lion. You know, they, they, sometimes they'll, when they follow, it's kind of funny. And they just want to follow and just like, okay, I'll do this. You know, uh, my, my boys would sometimes follow me when I, my older, I'm thinking of my older boys right now. They followed me. Um, they'd try to copy me working on a car by working on their tricycle, laying down under it, going like this. You know, you think, oh, isn't that cute? That's, that's just so, you know, kind of silly. But they're following me. As dear, they're my dear children. One time we lived in a Chandler. I'd walk out. We had to go through, the, through my back Arcadia door, through my across my um, backyard through our wood fence into the alley, walk down the alley and open this big stinky black garbage can to take out my trash. So I'd take my house trash and I'd go through there, a cradia door through the backyard, open the wood fence, go down the alley and put it in. I just remember one time, Michael, my oldest son, he's, he was probably only two or three. 
and I'm taking the trash, and I'm going like this. I go out the Cadia door, go through the, pass over the uh, backyard, open the wood fence, remind myself I need to tighten the hinge in the wood fence. I walk down, uh, walk down the alley, open up, and I go like this, and I turn around, and Michael's right there behind me. Hi, Daddy. Walking through the stinky, you know, alley. Hi, Daddy. You know, he just says, dear children, just kind of like, okay. You know what? We need to look like that. I need to look even unprofessional. All right, I'm just going to do what Jesus did. But that doesn't seem very, very, you know, mature. I'm just supposed to be a dear children, dear child. Follow him as dear children. Some people look at Christians who might would speak this way and think this way as, what are you doing? You seem so naive. Yeah, that's how a little kid does to some people following the parent. But if the parent's doing the right thing, it's not that naive. This is the right thing. I gotta follow him as a dear child. I gotta learn to deal, I learn to learn how to forgive people. And as we said, intervene for them, God. This guy did me wrong. Forgive them. Give, do something to help them. Intervene in prayer for somebody. Come on. All right. The, some of this it might be just all right, in here. You're like, pray for your own least favorite brother. <laughs> that might be making a baby step, man, toward the cross. Right. I mean, that's probably where most of you are. You're like, I'm not thinking about being crucified. I just can't stand one of my brothers because he's so mean and unfair. Well, intervene for them. And don't stand there and take, you know, uh, situations where you become a punching bag for no reason. You don't, have to, you don't have to atone for sins. But there's times where we have to respond in a Christ-like way to mistreatment, and it involves, oh, God, help this person. He's, he's bad. Forgive him. Let him have time to think and repent and... That's what Jesus is doing. It says, follow him as dear children. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. And it says there, I exhort therefore that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Isn't it interesting, chapter 2, verse 1, intercessions be made for all men. Now, interceding for somebody has the idea of this person is, doesn't, they're not doing the right thing. So you do for them what they're not doing for themselves. Some people don't pray. Do for them what they're not doing for themselves. I don't know what our president does. Probably not pray or to the, the God of the Bible. So like, I need to do for him what he's not doing for himself. That's called interceding. A lot of people are not doing for themselves what they ought to do, so you do it for them. I'm interceding. God, help this guy. This, help this person. Ah, oh, you know, that's what we're supposed to call to do. For undeserving people, that's what Jesus is doing. I, this is a blessing. There's, so, there's several illustrations we could give more, but... I was reading recently about some people that were murdered. It's actually a few years ago in uh, Libya. Uh, the Libyan Islamic State, it's a form of ISIS. They released, in, it's actually in 2015, they re released video footage of a martyrdom 
of some Coptic Christian men. Coptic Christians mean basically Egyptian Christians. So these Egyptian Christians, they captured in Libya, and they killed them, and they, they love you. Take footage of it and record it and everything. The footage of their martyrdom included a caption that read, quote, these are the people of the cross, the followers of hostile, the hostile Egyptian church. 21 of these men knelt before their persecutors were identified as people of the cross. They were asked to deny their faith or die. Men of, many of them were seen uttering fi- their final words on this earth. Rabina Yeshua, Lord Jesus Christ. While it was reported that all of the men were Coptic Christians from poor villages in Upper Egypt, it was, also, it was later discovered that actually it wasn't the case. One of those men that was martyred that day was actually, his name was Matthew Ayirga, who was a young man from Chad. That's one of the other African countries. He was in that group. He ended up joining that group. He is believed to not have been a Christian before kneeling in the sand beside the people of the cross. But while he was witnessing the courage and faith of these other Egyptian Christians, he chose to follow Jesus and join them at the execution moment. Mere moments before Matthew was executed, his executioners were seen asking him, do you reject Christ? His his reply was, their God is my God. And then he was executed, leaving his earthly body for his eternal abode. It's amazing, you know, the cross, they're taking up their cross. That's like the ultimate. We're like, we're far from that. Uh, but it's inching there. You know, having the cross, it's more than, the cross is much heavier than just a, a piece of jewelry or something on our car. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have that. If you want, that's fine. Or a design on a t-shirt. The cross is an exchange, all right? Giving up my life, I'm going to take on His. I'm identifying with Him. But back at these men here, the brother, two, the, a brother of two of these Christian men martyred, ended up going on live TV to thank ISIS for including their faith-filled words that the media released to the world. <laughs> Families of the Christian men who were martyred on the shores of Libya that day publicly forgave their persecutors echoing the words of the one they follow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So, can I say that? Can I pray that? Is there somebody I can't pray that for? Father, forgive them. The most important thing is make sure that you're under this forgiveness. You know, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, it's that immediate group but his, the whole work that day was saying, Father, forgive all who would believe on me. Forgive everybody. Listen to that. We sang this song. I'll read this and we'll close this in just a minute. In Arise, My Soul, Arise, the 665 plus one song. Five bleeding wounds he bears, receive, he bears two hands, two feet, his head. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead to God for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. <laughs> so he was intervening for the moment, but he's intervening for anybody who believe on him. He's saying, Father, forgive Mike Henry who would believe on me. Isn't this enough payment? Father, 
you know, for, forgive Matt. Isn't this enough? Yeah, it's satisfied. And we need to have that same mentality. We need to, first of all, make sure you're trusting in Matt, in his work, not yours. Trusting in his salvation work and not yours. And then I have to live this. I have to live this attitude toward the people who don't deserve it. And there's probably, in some cases, a lot. When I 